Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be uh, this morning as we continue our two-part series looking at these parables of Jesus from this passage and in particular looking um, at the parable of what is known as the prodigal son. Bear with me as I'm going to read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 32 uh, this morning. Let's get to God's word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So I told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice! With me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to eat to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no, no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he is found. And since the reading... Of God's word, may the grass wither and the flower fade, but may his word stand forever. Like I said earlier, we're taking a couple weeks to look at this famous and fairly well-known story from the Bible. As you see in verses 1 and 2, 
very beginning of chapter 15, the context of these stories that Jesus gives, in particular prodigal son's story, as we see there at the beginning, is that Jesus has surrounded himself and made friends with tax collectors and sinners. And yet there are those in the crowd who are fairly angry about this. Those who are known as Pharisees. They're angry and they're questioning that Jesus would eat with such sinners and align himself and have a friendship with these type of people. And in response to the sentiments of the Pharisees, Jesus shares with them a series of stories. Three stories, in fact. In fact, fact, I said this last week, that there's a series of stories, or as they are known as parables. And you can see these three stories like three stories from a play. Three acts from a play. The act one is the story of a shepherd who is a lost sheep and he goes out and seeks that sheep and finds it and brings it home and they rejoice and celebrate. The second act is very similar. There's the story of a woman who loses a coin. So she lights a lamp and she sweeps the house and she finds the coin and then she invites her friends over to rejoice and to celebrate. And the story to which we will focus our attention today, again, is the story known as the prodigal son. But this is a misnomer, isn't it? For unlike the first two parables, where there was one lost sheep and one lost coin, it begins this way. And there was a man who had two sons. See, Act 3 has two scenes in it. Not just one scene, but two. The parable of the prodigal follows just like the previous two stories, in which there is a young man, he runs away. He's lost from his father, just like the lost sheep and the lost coin. And the father seeks him and finds him. He rejoices at his return and he celebrates. But what we find in this last scene, this addendum scene of sorts, after these three other scenes, these three other acts, is an add-on story that is distressing and perhaps strange. What is shocking about this story is not that the father receives back a prodigal. That is consistent with the other two stories. But what is shocking is that the older brother is lost as well. This is a parable told to Pharisees and for Pharisees, for older brothers, perhaps like you and me. See, in this parable, Jesus is holding up a mirror and he's letting the Pharisees see themselves. And he's saying, you know who you are? You're this brother who's outside the party. You are lost as well. So we see that the older brother is lost. He is lost as well. So that's where we begin this morning. The lostness of older brothers. The lostness of Pharisees. This older brother who is righteous, he is dutiful, he is obedient, he stays and does all that the Father commands, and yet he is described as lost. You've got to understand your lostness. Are you like the older brother? We begin there. Understanding the lostness of the older brother is first and foremost, what we see is his lostness is the same as the prodigal's lostness. Because he is relationally separated from the Father. In fact, he is the one who has caused the relational separation, the rejection of the Father. Last week, we looked at the lostness of the, old, of the younger brother. Who told the Father, I, want, I don't want you, but I want your stuff. He said, Father, I hate you essentially. I wish you were dead. I'm going to live as if you are dead. So give me my inheritance and I'm going to be on my way. He doesn't have a relationship with the Father. And we actually looked at last week how that is the heart of what spiritual lostness is. Is to have spiritual separation from God our Father. And what he goes and does in light of his lostness as a consequence of his lostness. Is he goes and commits many sins. Now these are traditional sins. The life of the prodigal is what we look at and we go, oh yes of course he's lost. 
He's off living a debauched lifestyle. He's having a partying lifestyle. All sorts of sexual immorality is going on. He spends his money willy-nilly and loses it all, etc., etc. This is the traditional form of what we would call the rebel, the prodigal. These things are obvious sins. But if you remember, as we described last week, the core of lostness is not the outward sins and the behaviors that are committed, but it's the relational separateness from the Father. It was not his misbehavior... But it was his hatred of the father that separated him. And this is what is seen in the older brother as well. Do you see in verse 28 that when the younger brother comes home and the father throws this great celebration, where is the older brother? Is he in the party with the father? No. He has separated himself. In fact, in verse 28 is a significant turn in this whole passage. And it describes the older brother this way. It says the older brother is angry. Who do you think he's angry at? He is angry at the father. And he refuses to go into the party. He refuses to identify with his father and with his family any longer. What is he doing? He is separating himself. This is not rejection of the younger brother so much, but rejection of his father. He is humiliating his father. In fact, in that day and age, this this party that is being thrown, it would have been glaringly obvious that the older brother was not there because he would actually be the one who is supposed to sit at the head of the table welcoming the brother back. And yet, and yet... He has separated himself from the family. The older brother, it's also seen in verse 29, when the father comes out and engages with the son, the older brother says that he has merely treated his father or lived for his father as a servant and not as a son. He says, Father, you've never given me a goat. That's what he's angry about. That the younger brother has been given the fattened calf and a huge party, and he shakes his fist at the father and says, Where's my goat? Where's my celebration? What does he want? Does he want to interact with the family, interact with the father? Does he interact with the father's joy that his younger son has come home? No. No. He's angry about it. What does he want more than anything? Just like the younger brother, he wants the, younger, the father's stuff. Many of you are familiar with Tim Keller. This is one of the passages that has made him, made him famous as he wrote a book on this same passages, passages called the prodigal God. And he says this in that book. You see, one brother is very, very good. And one brother is very, very bad. But they are both alienated from the father's heart. Each one of them wanted the father's things, but not the father. One brother alienated himself by pushing the father away and saying, I'm going to take my inheritance and run away and live any way I want to. The other, fa- the other brother is separated from the father in this way, in which he says, I've done everything you've asked. And I've done it in order to get your stuff, not to get you, Father. He's separated. Henry Nouwen says this, Not only did the younger brother who left home get lost, but the one who stayed home also became a lost man. Exteriorly, he did all the things a good son is supposed to do, but interiorly, he had wandered from his father. He has no love for the father. Each of these brothers, listen to this, used the father to get what they really wanted, which is the father's stuff. And this is the description of older brother lostness. That you involve yourself with all sorts of religious activities. You come to church. You vote for the Republican Party. You save your money. You keep a good job. And yet you do it all to get what? God? No, no. To get his stuff. To make yourself look good. You need yourself the comfort and the lifestyle that you desire. It all comes down to motivation here. 
The younger, the younger brother is motivated by the father's stuff, but just so, too, is the older brother. They just go about it in very different ways. Here's what is being said here. And this is important for people sitting in Christian pews today. What is being said here is that you can be with God and yet still be far from God. You can hang out with God and you can know the theology and you can know all the right words and you can vote all the right ways. And frankly, you can live all the right ways as well and yet be completely separated from God and not know him as your father. Jesus talks about this and, and refers to this in, in, J, in John chapter 14. We see this example, verses 8 and 9. And when Philip comes to Jesus and says, Lord, show us the Father. And that would be enough for us. But Jesus said to them, have I been with you so long and yet you still do not know me? He's saying, you've lived with me for years and yet you do not know that I am the exemplification of the Father. Or Matthew seven twenty two, where there's a scathing indictment of Christians all over the place who shake their fists at the poor. When Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, that is, preach and proclaim, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. The Father is saying to the Son, How is it, Son? He goes out to them, how is it, son, that you have lived your whole life with me and experienced my graciousness and my goodness and my mercy and my love and all of my stuff which is given to you and yet you don't love me? That's what he's saying. He's saying, son, you are lost and you're right next to me. You're lost in church. Another way to put it is that you can be involved with the Father's stuff, the Father's issues, the Father's ministries, the Father's affairs, and yet not know the Father. This is a scary fact for us who are in ministry, or who do lots of stuff at the church, in which we can be so involved in church activities, and really it can be all about us. One of the great indictments of my own heart in the last year as I was working with my discipleship group about three months in, I was wrestling with some things in my life, and one day I had to confess to the guys in my group that I do ministry serving an idol of success, not serving my God and Father. It is about my glory. Why do you serve God? Is it to get God or is it to get something else? Ralph Davis, who's the best kept secret in our denomination, is a great commentator primarily on the Old Testament. But he says this on this passage, that though the older son worked in the father's fields, but he was still separated from the father. as kid. He was just as separated from the father as his kid brother was who was feeding on the hogs in the far country. And then he says this, the church, pew, the church pew can be the far country. Many of you are sitting here in this room and you have sung songs. And maybe you've gone to open hands this week. Or maybe you're going this week. And you've sought to live righteously. But you are lost. And you know it. Or far worse, maybe you don't know it. You see, the insidious danger... That the older brother is in. There is a pervasiveness, a, a hiddenness to this lostness that is incredibly scary for us who are Christians or who proclaim to follow Jesus. You say, last week I talked about the fact that, the, that lostness is described primarily at the center of it is separation and rejection of the Father. But what that leads to is a loss of your senses. Where your life begins to grow morally out of control or perhaps simply it spins out of control entirely like the younger brothers did. And when he came to his senses is when he returned to the Father. 
But what I want you to see is that the older brother is lost and maybe even more lost than his younger brother. And here's why. Because the only person who's more lost than a lost person is a lost person who has no idea they're lost. And what is it that makes the older son thinks that he is not lost? His righteousness, his goodness, his obedience. You see, for some of you, the greatest thing that keeps you from God is all of your goodness. All his work, his duty, his obedience, his ministry, his work in the fields, your work at the soup kitchen, his volunteering to work the extra shift with the sheep, you're volunteering at church. He homeschooled his kids, I bet. Or maybe if there are really good schools, he sent them to public school stating that I'm going to be a good missionary. That's who the older brother is, and yet he doesn't even know he's lost. Tim Keller, once again, he quotes John Gerstner. Gerstner is a well-known and distinguished professor of history and apologetics and is a leading scholar on the works of Jonathan Edwards. And Gerstner said this once, The thing that really separates us from God is not so much all our sin, but is all our damnable good works. You see, all your goodness has masked your need of God's grace and your desperate need for someone to save you. All your goodness, all your righteousness, all your exterior good behavior has made you believe that you're not really lost. And so you never cry out to the Father, I need you to save me. You've never fallen at the Father's feet saying, I am unworthy of you. You know the great line from the usual suspects? The greatest trick the devil ever told was to convince the world that he doesn't exist. Perhaps the greatest temptation of the devil is to bring into your life is for you to believe you're just not that bad. You're just not that lost. The Apostle John, in the last book of the Bible, first couple chapters, he's writing to various regional churches, and, and he's bringing some significant critiques to them and challenging their various perspectives in the way they live out the Christian life. And he writes to a particular church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, and it says this in verses 15 through 17. He says this, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold, Would that you were either hot or cold. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They don't understand they're lost. And therefore, they were not cold and realized it or cried out to God. Nor were they very hot. See, your wealth is all your good works, and it's hidden you from all, all of your sinfulness. Well, here's the question How do you know you're the older brother? How do I help reveal to you this morning? This is the insidiousness of it, right? You don't know you're lost. What can I say this morning to help you understand that you're lost? Let me see if I can give you some evaluative points and marks of the older brother seen here in this passage. And the significant mark is this, and it's found in verse 28. The mark of lostness is this. The brother said this in response to the celebration. But he was angry and refused to go in. The immediate emotional response of the older brother was anger. And so he would not enter into the joy and the celebration of the father's graciousness and mercy. If you look at your Christian life 
And it is marked more by anger than it is by joy and celebration. Then that is a good sign that you're an older brother at heart. That you're living out of the paradigm of older brotherism. Let me walk through these couple marks, separate them. First, first mark is older brothers are marked by anger. All kinds of anger at all kinds of things. Older brother anger riles up when life simply doesn't go the way we want it to. When suffering or consequences or failure of our failures enter our lives or simply we're not giving something that we really want or desire. And the response in us that God is anger. Or perhaps it's not God. You see there's usually, actually there's three targets but two in particular when something goes wrong with our life. We either get angry, as older brothers we get angry either at God or at us. See, here's the paradigm. See, when an older brother knows that they've made a mistake, and that's what we'll call it, right? Not a real sin. A failure. When we know we've been fr- confronted with our weaknesses and we're, we get really angry about it. Who do we get angry at? Ourselves. And we beat ourselves up over our anger. And we have all sort of filled with all sorts of self-hatred. At how, we, how can we fail like this? Now look at the consequences of your life. And you must beat your back. That's the paradigm. Of an older brother. But when an older brother believes that they have obeyed. When they believe they have done exactly what God the Father told them to do. When they have dotted the the T's and crossed the I's. And yet God still allows some sort of suffering to come into their life. Or God withholds something from their life. They get really, really angry. You see, here's here's the paradigm of an older brother. It goes like this. If I obey, I deserve a cookie. And if I don't obey, I don't get a cookie. Or the cookie I have gets taken from me. And that makes me mad. Either at the parents or at myself. You see, the paradigm of the older brother is that the father owes me a celebration because of all of my goodness. And this is how often we we shake our fists at God when he brings suffering into our life or withholds something from our life. Because we go, God, you owe it to me to give this to me. Look at all I've done for you. You owe it to me. In that moment, you're functioning out of the older brother paradigm. It is a a paradigm of entitlement, saying I deserve to be treated this way or that way. So here's the question. It's a key question as you evaluate your life to know whether you're lost like an older brother. Is do you feel angry when God takes things from you? Well, he doesn't give you what you want. How do you react if it's anger, either yourself or at God's? And there's a good chance you're functioning out of an older brother paradigm. But the older brother paradigm also gets angry. He, his anger gets riled up when others receive grace. It gets really riled up at this. Or when the lives of others simply appear to be better than their own. <laughs> Here's how they have an older brother in the church. We know that, of course, we break God's law. We were here all the time in church services, and so we have to admit to it from time to time. But so what we do is that we know that God is perfect and we can't live up to his standard. And so we shape a different standard that is based on what? Comparison. In which we say, Father, how could you throw a party for that brother who squandered his inheritance and ran off from you? And yet look at what you've done. You've slaughtered the fattened calf for him. But look what you've done for me. Nothing. This is the paradigm of comparison. This is what the older brother is doing. He is comparing the grace that is given to the older brother compared to the things that have been given to him. And he's saying, I am better than that guy. How could you give that to him? 
This is a sign that you're functioning out of an older brother paradigm. C.S. Lewis says this, we have a test for our Christian desires. He says, whenever we find that our religious life is making us think that we are better than someone else, we can be sure that we are not being acted upon by the Spirit, but instead by the devil. Time you think you're better than someone else. That's a good sign. I think of Isma. One of my best, one of my favorite movies. My kids love it now. It's from the Emperor's New Groove. Isma's this kind of hideous creature character. It runs the kingdom. And a peasant comes to see her, is really frustrated. She shakes her fists. When they're asking for money, she says, You should have or you became a peasant. She thought she was better than this person because she chose a better line of work, which was to be a princess in the kingdom instead of a pauper. How many of you have left churches because you got angry that the youth group began to reach out to those type of people? See, older brothers destroy churches. Then they are, in fact, the greatest enemy to churches because they don't often understand grace at all. And what happens is when the church begins to do mission and reach out... The thing that you hear a chorus that echoes across the sanctuary is, what about the programs for me and my children? This is dangerous bringing these type of of people into the church. How dare us extend grace to those people? This is the sign of an older brother who thinks that they deserve a certain treatment because they're better. When other prodigals, prodigals come home, how do you feel when others are honored and given positions of leadership or authority or even pay that are above you? How do you feel when others' lives apparently go better than yours? Do you shake your fist at God? Is it anger? Then you might be functioning out of an older brother paradigm. Mark 2. The second mark of an older brother is this, is that you're marked by joylessness in your Christian life or your religious life. The other brother won't go into the celebration He has no joy for the Father's grace. He begrudges the Father's grace. At the heart of our joylessness is the belief that the Christian life is a duty, not a delight. It is the view that we must do the duty of slaves instead of living out of the delight of the Father. This is the perspective of an older brother. Notice in verse 29, he shows this perspective. He says this, All these years, Father, I have been serving you. Or in other translations, I have been slaving for you. How does the older brother view himself and his life? As servanthood, as bondage, as slavery, not as son. This is the perspective, not of a son who knows his father's love, but of a slave. Elder brothers obey, elder brothers pray, elder brothers do all the work of the church ministry, but they do it out of duty, and it is an absolute grind to them. There is no delight to it. In a large part, there is no joy because of the way we view the Father in this. You see, if the Son views himself as a slave and a servant primarily, and not primarily as a son, what does it say about his view of the Father? It means he views the Father primarily as a, not as a father, but as a taskmaster. Who lords over me with all of his commands. The opposite of our older brother perspective about the law is seen in David. If you read the Psalms, what is beautiful about the Psalms is David's perspective of the law. Over and over and over again, he proclaims his love and delight for the law of God. Why? Because he delights in the God of the law. The father of the law. You see, when Christians see the beauty of what Jesus has done for us, we don't say, I have to obey in order to get the Father's love. We say, I want to obey because I already have the Father's love. 
It is the delight of their heart to live out their life in obedience to God. Is this you this morning? Is your Christian life a grind each and every day? Is it a plodding along and there is no joy, it's all duty and no delight? Then perhaps you're an older brother. Would your joylessness bring you to your knees and asking you to cry? What must happen though? What must happen then for older brothers like you and me? And by the way, this is absolutely my testimony. You can't get more homeschooled than I was. I can out-homeschool every single one of you. You cannot get more right-winged than the place in which I grew up. I've worked for congressmen. I've walked the sidewalks. I've stood outside the abortion clinics with signs. I have been detained by the police. You cannot get more conservative than me. What I found is God crushed me because of all my goodness. What does it take? What brought me to the end of myself? What is it needs to happen for your own hearts for you to be brought to the end of your, all your goodness and turn to the Father? There's nothing, there's nothing that will work other than simply to have your eyes opened to the Father's love for you. Two things the Father does here, it's unbelievable, and this is what this story is about. Remember, the brother is lost. And first, we see, you've got to see the father's pursuit of you. All these parables, three words describe each of these stories. Lost, found, celebrated. And what we see, that just as the father has sought out from his front porch and run out to meet the younger brother, the prodigal who has come home, what does the father do for the older brother? He leaves the party and he comes out and he pleads with him to come in. And this is exactly what God the father has done for us. Through the personal work of Jesus Christ, someone left the party of heaven to come and plead with you to come home. This is what he did. This is what we see in the gospel. Would you see that? Would you see that he has pursued you? The second thing, and and this is more elaborate in the text, we also need to see the father's position or posture towards you when he comes out. A couple things here. First, we see that the father entreated the son. The father entreats the elder son. There's all these places throughout the gospels in which the way Jesus interacts with the Pharisees is he can be pretty tough on them. He calls them a brood of vipers at various times, and he can be pretty direct and almost harsh. But not here. Not on this day, he doesn't. He's entreating the Pharisees. And this is what the Father does in the text. The Father doesn't come out and give commands as the Son has complained that the Father does. What does he say about the Father? I have done all that the Father commands. He demands of me. But what do we see the Father do, do here? He comes out and he entreats the Son. He doesn't come out to the son and say, stand here right in front of me, you idiot. You stupid older Pharisee brother, you moron. Come here and stand in front of me. Now you get in the party right now. This is embarrassing for the family. That's not what he does. Oddly enough, there's an interesting thing going on in the the Greek that this older son has called a servant like a slave. And he calls him, it's the word echoleo. Which means to call or to beckon or to demand. And what's going on there is like when you call your kid when they've done something wrong. And you, you, you get them in front of you, and you mean it's a, it's a rigid, right, you stand right here, you, right here, eyes on me, right? That's what's going on when he is talking about talking to the servant. What is going on? Why is there celebrating going on? That's not what the father does. 
The word that is used there when it comes and says the Father entreats is the word parakaleo, which is the same word when, we, when the Spirit comes upon us. It is the, what is going on is there is a visible sign. The Father is coming out, and he's putting his arms around the Son, and he is pleading with him to come in. He's saying, Son, I love you. Enter into my embrace and come into the, far, into the party. He is wooing, and he's appealing, and he's pleading with an older, older brother, this Pharisee, to come into the party. The second thing, what do you see he does? What is, how does he refer to this older son? It's interesting here. The older son will not even call the younger son his brother, really. He won't acknowledge any kind of connection to him. The father comes out, and what does the older son say? This son of yours, I have no connection to him. But the father comes out, and he said to him, son, son. And actually, there's something even deeper going on there. In most translations, and I think even in the ESV, it says, son. But actually, it is the word technon there. Eight times in this passage, in chapter Luke 15, it uses the word weos, which is the normal term for son. But here, the father comes out and he uses the word technon, which is the word for little child. And he is not belittling the older son, but this is a word of intimacy and tenderness. He's saying, child, my boy. Well, how would you live your life like this? Come into the celebration. You have my love. Would you come in? The intimacy of this relationship between the father and the son is further displayed by what he says. He says, child. And then what does he go on to say? You are always with me in verse 31. This phrase draws out an incredible implication of being a child of God. Let me point back to something. John 8, 35, it says this. The slave, in talking about God's house, the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. How does the son see himself? The older brother sees himself not as a son, but as a slave and a servant. The father is coming out, and he's confronting him with his words, with his body language, with everything. And he's saying... You're not a servant. You're not a slave. We're not in a contract together. This is a love that is binding and permanent between us. All that I have is yours. You see, he's trying to shake him free from the paradigm of a slave and into the paradigm of a son. One commentator put it this way. He said, with this one word, child, the father exposes all the deep distortions of the son's heart. I've been serving you, and I've never passed, whenever... Disobeyed even one of your commandments. The father didn't even try to argue the point. It would lead to nowhere. The whole relationship was built on the wrong footing, this commentator says. With one word, the father seeks to set it right. Child. Hear my voice, child. You are not a slave. You're a son. There's a beautiful line from a great old hymn called, entitled, Love Constraining to Obedience. And this is the perspective, this hymn, of someone who has gone from an older brother to someone who is now free of it. And it says this in the chorus, To see the law of Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, that changes a slave into a child and duty into a choice. This is what the Father is beckoning. Would you see yourself as a son, not as a slave? Then finally, what does the Father say last? The Father says, All that is mine is yours. Now, it was all of the father's possessions, the older brother's, because he was perfect and dutiful in his obedience, as the father, older brother claims? No. It's been his inheritance since the day he was born. It has always been his. Not because of all of his obedience, not because he has worked so hard in the fields, but because simply he is a son of the father. The father says, this is the depths and lengths of my love for you. 
that all that I have is yours, and it has always been yours. Now, here's what is so unbelievable about the gospel and what this tells us about the Father's love for us. Is that what it says in the gospels in Ephesians and in other places, that before we were even sons, he loved us. And how do we know that there is not one thing that the Father will not give us? How do we know? That everything that the Father possesses is ours. Because he gave up the true and perfect son, didn't he? Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us graciously all things? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he was willing to give up the land, the treasures. No, he gave up his son. All that is mine is yours. I'm even willing to give up the son of God to make you mine. That is unbelievable. That melts your heart. For God so loved Pharisees that he gave up his only son. For God so loved angry older brothers that he gave up his one and only son. This is a father entreating and calling and beckoning the son back into relationship with him. Would you hear the father's voice? Would you know the father is loving and good? One final thing this morning. It's the question that is left for us who are older brothers. I read Hardy Boy books growing up. Did you? I love Hardy Boy books. In fact, I remember one time being sick, uh, like, you know, it must have been the flu because I was flat on my back as like 11 or 12 year old and just reading a stack of them. What was so great about Hardy Boy's books and, and the genius of them is there wasn't simply a cliffhanger at the end of the book. There was a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter in which you would go, what's going to happen to Chet or whatever his name is or Biff? This is the technique that Jesus is using here at the end of this passage. He's ending it with a cliffhanger. You see how the story, the storytelling of Jesus, there was a lost sheep and the shepherd goes after him and the sheep comes home and there is celebration. There is a lost coin, the woman seeks and she finds and there is a celebration. There is a lost prodigal, a rebel who runs away from home and the father stands on his front porch gazing and seeking for his boy and when he sees him he runs out and he greets him and he brings him home. And here in this last addendum story, this final scene, this last act, there is an older brother and the father goes out to him to bring him into the celebration. But then what happens? The story ends. We don't know. Will the older brother come in or will he stay out? This is the story. Jesus is appealing all the way back to the very beginning of chapter 15 to the Pharisees in verses 1 and verses 2. And he is saying this. Will you come into the celebration? Will you leave all your damnable good works and will you enter into grace finally? See, the entering of the celebration, the gospel here that Luke is giving to us is this. He's extending the same question to you and me. Luke turns the Father's appeal to us and he says, will you enter the gospel celebration? That's the point of why this is in here. Will you enter the celebration? Into the celebration means laying aside your anger, means laying aside all of your self-righteousness, laying aside all your attempts to save yourself, 
means laying aside all your good works and all of your so-called worthiness. And instead coming and saying, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I claim. That's what it means to come into the celebration. Listen, I have good news for you. Jesus welcomes sinners. And if you're an older brother, I have really good news for you too. Jesus welcomes Pharisees as well. Pharisees like you and me who have shaken our fists at the world around us. Who said, why can't they live differently? Why can't they just follow my example? And yet Jesus comes to us and says, my grace is for you as well. Now that is amazing grace. Would you brothers and sisters enter into the celebration? It's right here. Let's go to the banqueting table of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Men who are serving, please come forward. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, in a moment, we take the bread and we take the cup. And they speak sweet things. But Lord, this is a hard, hard word in the midst of the tenderness of the Father. Lord, you know my own feelings this week on Wednesday. As I was writing out my outline and I read verse 28 and described the older brother as angry. And internally I said, "Uh uh-oh. Lord, I confess to you that I am an angry older brother. And gracious God, I confess to you (laughs) that in the bizarreness of my own mind and my own selfishness, that I think that I get grace and I'm angry at other older brothers. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would lay aside all that we think that has made us worthy and better than everybody else in this room. That we, like Paul... Who as he grew and became more and more righteous, began to understand more and more that I am the least of all of God's people. And that I am the most in need of God's grace. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that older brothers in this room, those who have shaken our fists at those around us who have been angry, who have resisted community, and who have no celebration joy in our life because we think it's about a duty still. But Lord, we would lay that aside and we would come feast at your table upon the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Lord, we set aside these simple elements, this bread and this cup this morning. We pray that you would afresh and anew wash over us the truth of your grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.